Hello and welcome to the latest City-Centric podcast in this special little series on the Cities for Future Humans conference that was actually taking place last Wednesday the 15th of May. Uh, the kind people at the Connected Places Catapult donated their venue for the day as we invited uh, nine speakers in total plus a couple moderators to review three panels all on the topic of how we in the built environment industry across technology, urban planning, real estate, architecture etc can work to protect protect future life in cities for people all through the lens of how climate change is going to disrupt how we see normal life in our cities being. So for this episode I'm joined by Dr Daniel Slade who is the research officer for the Royal Town Planning Institute, the RTPI. Um, He's got a great academic background and his current position is as a research officer looking at their work on climate change, resilience, climate justice. Uh, But he's also been a researcher for the Institute for Government, working in the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, a department for communities and local government. So he's got quite a background in very institutional approaches uh, to how we enhance the public service and how we improve its capabilities to support people on a granular level. So um, we talked about a couple of things. We touched on some topics that are very straightforward and hit the truth on a number of other ones in the great world of AI and etc that we live in there are some harsh realities of where we actually sit right now uh, please do enjoy the podcast great Daniel welcome to the podcast um, I've given a brief introduction to listeners just before and I was wondering if you could give a more personalized introduction as to uh, who you are your journey to the RTPI and what you're doing with reflections on climate change and sort of uh, you know, what drew you to wanting to participate in the conference, which was the sort of Cities for Future Humans. So uh, over to you. Uh, yeah, uh, so um, I'm the research officer for the Royal Town Planning Institute, uh, and I lead our work on climate change. I, I suppose my route into working in this subject is really through doing a PhD uh, in, in governance and how central government functions in relation to uh, planning and planning reform more widely, with a particular focus on this idea of spatial governance. So I think this is a useful way of thinking about planning, uh, which is probably more in touch with how it actually works on the ground. So rather than a narrow regulatory way of thinking about uh, planning as uh, approving or um, uh, or accepting certain buildings, especially like uh, housing developments, it's a way of thinking about the sort of spatial relations between different uh, infrastructure, um, different communities, and regulating those relationships uh, effectively, and also enabling as well. So uh, enabling investment or enabling certain potential features to, to, to sort of be realised over time. So it's quite a fluid um, way of thinking about um, planning and the role planning has in society. Uh, the RTPI's interest in this topic really stems from it being, I suppose it's a, it's a, it's a, mega, pro, a mega problem. Uh, planning has been identified and land use has been identified by groups such as the UN as being uh, absolutely central to our ability to create the massive uh, transitions in how we use energy and how we uh, structure society, which would be required to actually um, reduce the worst impacts of climate change and to uh, mitigate our, our carbon emissions. So, this is quite an obvious and central um, consideration for, for the Royal Town Planning Institute, given our role as the representatives of um, town planners and the profession, and also the Learned Society responsible sort of for sort of, um, critical thinking in this area and encouraging the best in academic research in the area. Awesome. So, I mean, if we stick with the notion of energy and sustainability right now, um, 
you know, sustainable buildings and communities are delivered through sustainable citizens. You know, you can almost build the greatest product, but if people use it in an incorrect way, then we can sometimes stress a product or a building or a service to the point where it no longer becomes sustainable. Um, you know, in so much as if you don't provide the right level of meeting rooms or offices within a building, then people are going to demand and consume places that you didn't expect. So there's a lot of trying to, uh, you know, predict or forecast how to create um, both sustainable people through the products and services that are provided around them and sort of educate them into use what service or what uh, purpose. So um, something that I was reading in one of your articles that you wrote was the notion of climate justice. And in your sort of mission to deliver that, where do you feel that urban planning has the responsibility in creating more sustainable communities from a bottom-up perspective? Mm. Uh, one of the central roles of planning is about um, really about storytelling and communication. It's about transferring information from citizens uh, into policy making processes and into the d design of cities and urban systems. Uh, climate justice is a useful way of thinking about this. It's got because it's got two elements, two different types of justice it considers. So the first of them is um, distributional uh, justice. So this is how um, climate change will impact on different communities differently uh, and the processes which shape that. And then it's got procedural justice. So this is uh, the, the, the different um, extent to which different communities can influence decision-making on our responses to climate change, whether mitigation or adaptation, and what shapes their ability to have a say in these processes. So there's various kinds of inequality involved in that, and they relate to various forms of identity um, and levels of vulnerability. But the role of planning in creating sustainable citizens is really about making the process as open as possible for them to be able to communicate what they see as their key um, vulnerabilities uh, and to sort of shape the direction of future policy. It's, it's interesting, actually. If you, it's, it's, uh, we can think about things like, for example, the provision of sustainable decentralised energy networks as being a very... Uh, instrumental um, sort of process so you and a very technical process so you deliver these energy networks they reduce your uh, carbon emissions um, it's all very sort of scientific in that sense really uh, one of the benefits of these kind of systems and this is drawing on research which we've um, which we're conducting at the moment into how spatial planning can support the rollout of smart energy grids is that by bringing energy production and energy systems and energy storage closer to the communities who then use it, it increases awareness of, uh, of energy systems, the role they play, uh, how these things actually work, and also how much energy they actually use, and therefore leads to more um, sustainable lifestyle um, uh, sort of patterns and choices. Uh, so, yeah, it can, community engagement in both directions is, uh, is critical. Uh, it, it's critical in, in that kind of way I just outlined in terms of um, awareness and awareness of sustainability, the importance of sustainability. Uh, it's also awareness, it's also crucial in terms of being able to shape the policy direction. So uh, with, with the example of smart energy grids, again, uh, we've got concern that if you don't ensure that um, communities can shape policy enough, it can result in a backlash against the, the rollout of new technology. Um, especially relating to energy production, if communities feel like they've not been involved enough in the decision-making, regardless of what the actual end product is. So there's a good example of this. Uh, the, when the coalition government came into power um, in 2010, one of its key manifesto commitments was to roll back the, the rollout of onshore wind um, generation across England. Uh, and this was because for the, the years, uh, the years um, um, earlier, 
they'd, uh, the government had identified onshore wind as being a, a key way that it could reduce carbon emissions in, energy, in, 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 in the energy system. And it made it as easy as possible for people to get plan permission to, to deliver wind farms. And this upset so many local communities that eventually they, uh, there was a backlash against it and uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives eventually made it as hard as possible as a way, really, of, of winning votes. So fast forward to, to, to the, the current era, and we can see this, uh, the rollout of technology relating to um, electric vehicles. And the government is extremely keen to, to accelerate this as far as possible and get electric vehicles and, and ultra-low emission vehicles on the road as soon as possible. So they're um, making it as easy as possible to get planning permission to, to, to install the necessary infrastructure. So charging points and battery storage, uh, that kind of thing. But we can already see, especially in the, in the west of England and in the area around Bristol, the local communities who feel like they've not been consulted enough on these new electric charging points, which are popping up in banks near to um, petrol stations or more significantly around parks and local green spaces. So there, there's a, there's a slowly growing backlash emerging. So part of the role of planning again and, and creating, um, ensuring that uh, citizens, citizens are, see their, their lives in sustainable ways is by ensuring they feel like they're, they're enfranchised and they have a say in these urban decision-making processes. Awesome. With regards to the electric vehicle points and the sort of decentralisation of energy networks to make more people more apparent, uh, is it planned that individual consumers will understand the levels of energy used for electronic vehicles in their own area? Because one of the sort of criticisms at the moment, particularly directed at somewhere like London, is that the, if we were to pivot very uh, quickly towards an, you know, uh, an EV uh, fleet, that actually the energy would be produced elsewhere uh, across the uh, you know, across the country. And so the emissions and the energy consumption will impact a localised neighbourhood more. So if we go the decentralised route, will we see that energy storage will need to be, and what energy produced will need to be stored close to where it's consumed? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, these, the idea of these decentralised networks is that they're, they're less dependent on, on, on the wider system uh, and can operate on their, um, on their own terms. Uh, it's also it's also the idea that um, people become if that's the process you have um, individuals become to feel more responsible because they might actually be responsible for generating some of that energy whether it's solar panels on the roof of their building or um, they're contributing to the local grid in other ways in their local areas and their their neighbourhoods it's about human scale to energy production uh, which could be an extremely healthy thing to have in the future. All right. Um, you mentioned buildings. So if we flip uh, the conversation away from sort of macro town planning and start to actually look at, well, uh, you know, planning is about setting a framework for different actors to engage upon and uh, work in different ways. You know, in particular, uh, you know, planning is a very slow and long term based process as well as the real estate industry and so if we take this topic and the narrative of how we need to adapt our cities to you know maintain a quality of life for people in this in the sort of lens of climate change um what do you feel that the rtbi is doing with regards to what is needed now what is needed soon and kind of what is needed in the future and how you actually engage with the sort of active private participants within the real estate industry to understand their local importance, their context and things like supply chains. Uh, I know it's something you've looked at and you sort of elaborate on it a, a little bit more. Mm. Uh, so this is, this is in relation to um, 
um, network working in sort of with stakeholders and partnerships and that, that kind of yeah, yeah. In particular, the the real estate industry. So, if we flip from something like uh, transport through electronic vehicles, um, and look at actually how buildings are created and what we look at buildings from a sustainable perspective, uh, an energy grid perspective. You know, you mentioned putting uh, solar uh, tiles on roofs as a way to help understand or you know even generate power locally to be used locally as well. But the reality is, in you know intervening with private organisations comes with their own types of politics. So there's you know there are quick wins and then there are you know there is general message in the future about how we engage i mean what is it that the article i feels is you know a successful starting point with someone like the real estate industry you know where does it need to get to what does it need to support uh real activity from the private industry yeah um it's it's a bit i might seem a bit of a strange answer to a question which is really focused about the the private sector but for us the answer really lies in the local state, so the local public sector. They're the key partner for so many of these private interventions, these private strategies. And really, there is no, there is no functioning market without an effective state. The state produces the market in a, in a sort of political economic sense. Uh, the best examples we can see of sort of failed um, uh, partnership working, failed um, efforts to really uh, in- increase the use of things like decentralised energy networks really relate to an underpowered um, and severely weakened over recent years in the UK, especially uh, state. So with this work we're doing on smart energy grids, you can see um, a kind of trajectory over over recent years in terms of how much um, this technology has really been gathered momentum and started to be rolled out. And there's a, there's a, if you imagine the graph, the graph starts off quite steeply and we can see a lot of progress up to about 2010, 2011. And then with the advent of austerity and the lack of um, ability for local authorities and uh, the public sector to act as a, uh, the, the centre of collaboration, a kind of node in the network of actors or as a kind of uh, creator of forums for thinking about this kind of work in a coordinatory sense, uh, you see a serious drop-off. And then uh, we're only really now getting back to the level we were in around 2010, 2011. Uh, I think this is much more widely a serious problem of how how the sector is is coping with um, climate change. I I think it's difficult to think in very binary terms about the public sector and the private sector and the role of those two different sets of actors. It's really about having a sense of a mission, um, potentially guided by the, the, the public sector, working with the private sector to achieve that to achieve that mission. Uh, this is like this concept of mission orientated um, strategy, which I think is extremely helpful for thinking about this. Uh, on, a, on a global level, um, the UN has identified um, governance capacity as a as a key barrier to this kind of cross um, like multi actor and cross sectoral working. I, it absolutely applies in the in the UK as well. We quite regularly run um, training sessions for for local authority planners about how they can work with different actors from the third sector, from the private sector, from other parts of the public sector to respond uh, and plan for climate change at the local level, whether at the scale of buildings and requirements for different buildings, or more broadly, right up to the kind of city regional strategic level. Uh, this is something they also legally have to do. They have to. Uh, that they're legally required to plan for climate change. And it's it's incredibly difficult to get um, high rates of attendance at these sessions, no matter who we partnership and no matter where we hold them and whether they're even in their own buildings. And this is because of a a serious lack of capacity in in local government at the moment to even be able to spare staff to uh, attend these events. 
Uh, outside of these training sessions, you can also see that the, the city regions which are emerging at the moment uh, have been handed a great deal of responsibility for this kind of coordinated approach to responding to climate change. Again, right from the in level of individual buildings up to the city regional level. But if you look at the, 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 the planning staff of these organisations across the country, it's actually quite scary. So at present, Liverpool City Region, which is one of the front runners really for this kind of, um, this kind of planning, and I can talk about that a little bit more um, in a minute in relation to climate justice, uh, have two mem full-time members of uh, planning staff. If you look at um, Greater Manchester, one of the front runners in general is strategic planning. They've probably got a handful of staff and not many more. With the exception of London, it's a, it's kind of a scary picture um, out there. And I don't see how, with all the, the greatest advances in neuroscience and uh, technology and uh, private enterprise, we're going to achieve the scale of change required if you don't have a functioning local state. And are there particular job roles within that? So is it just a case where if you throw more... Um, you know, planning regulators to deliver more housing will actually solve this sort of macro issue? Or are you seeing a gap in the job role, the job type um, that is needed to address the sort of the macro situations of uh, everything from, uh, you know, things leading towards such stuff such as uh, environmental racism and inequality within built environments and how that's seen through the lens uh, you know, in a sort of uh, climate justice, do you think that new roles need to be created and understood? Or is it a matter of we actually just need more bums on seats? There's a little bit of that. I think it's a little bit more focused, though. Um, I think the, the, the key the key problem is a lack of forward-thinking sort of policy development and the capacity to do that at the local level. Uh, it, it really comes down to... It's really an ideological problem. So... Uh, for since well for at least for the last uh, nine years or so planning has been focused around housing delivery and economic growth specifically just those two challenges most of the metrics used to judge local performance have been based around those two particular topics and it's it's purely quantitative as well so it's not necessarily about the quantity of the, uh, the quality of the houses and it's not necessarily about the type and the sort of fairness of the economic growth which happens as a result, um, local authorities have understandably poured their resources into the development management side of things. So these are the people who process planning applications uh, and make sure new developments are compliant with local policy. But where there's been a lack of investment in recent years, particularly, is on the policy side. So this is the side of planning which deals with working out a kind of a coherent vision for a place, where it needs to be in the future, uh, thinking about creative ways of achieving that vision, drawing in different stakeholders, and because of the way that these, this decision-making has been incentivized, that's really just fallen off. Um, some places, I don't get, get me wrong, some places have got really good examples of, of effectively planning for the future and thinking about things like climate change. One example where this has been a particularly effective is in uh, Glasgow in their, their Clyde Plan um, strategy, for example. But on the whole, uh, this is that's in spite of rather than because of uh, sort of the, the national um, uh, policy direction. All right, great. Um, I think one of the 
sort of quite key questions to determine is if we apply more people to a particular position, can they actually perform productively? And so I think, you know, we've mentioned before um, offline about the Liverpool City region and some of the issues that people such as uh, public practice, and we actually had uh, Pooja from uh, public practice who also works for the Greater London Authority looking after sort of Northwest London um, on the panel before you, um, where they take sort of their private planners and help put them into uh, local authorities to help sort of innovate and speed things up. And the reality is that a lot of people are still uh, interacting um, and just working off random spreadsheets and random PDFs. Um, you know, I think you've got some experiences working with Liverpool uh, and the difficulty faced. And, uh, you know, people like the Connected Places Catapult, formerly Future Cities Catapult, uh, you know, they've been looking at investing and helping develop, uh, you know, platforms and frameworks and, you know, technology tools to help bring local authorities kind of into a future age but um do you want to kind of express some of the the difficulties and challenges faced actually at local authority level and kind of the the distance that needs to be caught up and made up um at the moment where we sit in a world of ai and robotics and the reality is people are working off uh, really static pieces of paper still yeah it's it's really a question of being able to walk before you can run uh, I'll just start with an example, and I think I can sort of expand from there. So um, I'd say many, if not most, local authorities still uh, host their local plan policy documents in PDFs on um, their own personal websites with no, no necessary naming convention um, between local authority websites, extremely hard to search or navigate, for extremely opaque, uh, there's no central um, repository for like for local plan documents, which you can, which uh, the the public can easily search and get their heads around. Either for all for all like the best intentions in the world, uh, we can do clever work on neuroscience and AI and try and streamline processes. But what we really need to do in the first place is just deal with these very basic issues, and they do relate directly to climate change in the future of cities. They they lack transparency. And, then, and if we really want to make the great gains, um, and not marginal gains, in, in, in efficiency and, and really alleviate some of these uh, capacity problems I, I referred to earlier, it's really about fixing these very basic challenges uh, in, in terms of how local authorities work. Uh, I think this really points to the, the value of work like um, that which um, public practice uh, have been doing. So we can't, I think, we given these capacity problems, we can't do research organizations like the rtpi or um or the connected places catapult how we used to we can't um do our usual uh, interviews with stakeholders build up an idea of best practice assemble it into a pdf document upload it on our website and say oh this is how you should be working in the future this is this is this is best practice everyone have a look at this fancy launch event in westminster there you go we really need to make sure that through our research and through the kinds of things which public practice are doing uh, we build capacity at the same time as understanding what best practice might look like. So we've been putting a lot of thought into this at the RTPI, and our research program on climate change is guided by that principle of having to build capacity at the same time as doing research. So with the example of Liverpool, we're, um, we're doing research into how to use strategic planning, so very high-level planning across the whole of the city region to improve the city region's resilience. But we're doing that by uh, actually working in a sort of active action research um, capacity with the policy team to help them develop their policy in their city region for 
uh, climate resilience at that strategic level. And the idea is that this experience of working on the ground with them will both build their capacity and feed into the future guidance document we'll produce. And at the same time, we're trying to link up academia and practice more effectively. So we've commissioned research from the University of Liverpool and the University of Manchester uh, to develop case studies of what best practice looks like in, in working in this area. And then ensuring that the, the policy community becomes better connected in that region. So the, the planning schools in the area work with the policymakers who then inform our final uh, piece of research. I think you, you asked earlier about what we can do in the near term, uh, medium term and long term to uh, ensure that um, the, the sector is more sustainable. And I think part of the answer is ensuring that when we do research, when we try and improve uh, our practice, and bring ourselves towards best practice. We, we try and develop new ways of working because I'm not sure the old ways are, are, are effective when local capacity to actually take those messages on board is so limited. Okay, cool. Um, Daniel, I'm going to thank you for your time. And do you have any sort of uh, parting comments on the relationship between uh, urban planning cities and climate change? Is there any sort of personal or professional things you kind of want to leave as a last thought to people? Mm, I think the concept especially in the current uh, political climate of climate justice is absolutely central uh, i think it provides something we can wrap our actions as a sector around as we move forwards it draws in the the human element of climate change and perhaps more than any other any any sort of technical consequence of thinking in terms of the uh, people and ethics and justice it provides a really uh, strong narrative for for uh, advocating for planning for climate change and uh, making the kind of size of changes we need to make people can struggle to uh, understand uh, technical concepts and the level of uncertainty in terms of the effects of climate change over time but this very human sense of injustice and unfairness about where resources are distributed how um, discrepancies between uh, different parts of the country in terms of the likely effects of climate change and where the money's being spent on mitigation this can be a very powerful galvanizing force i think to um, to bring communities and parts of the sector together to respond effectively Awesome. And do you have any uh, books, videos, films that you'd recommend on that has kind of shaped some of the narratives that you guys are working towards at the RTPO? Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an excellent body of work which was produced by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, which is more or less wound up um, about a couple of years ago. But they did a great deal of work on the concept of um, climate justice and how it can inform uh, public policy making and what its consequences are for things like the development of new technology and new ways of working and, and policymaking. Awesome. Brilliant. Daniel, thank you very much for sparing the time. Thank you for joining us at the conference. I hope it's uh, got you thinking about new solutions and I hope some of the stuff that you've imparted today will uh, help others understand the, the needed steps if we're going to have any success in progressing forward. So thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thanks a lot. So a massive thank you to Daniel for taking the time out to join us on the show. If you have any questions about what he's up to, you can find him on his Twitter handle, which is a very simple one. It's at underscore D Slade, S-L-A-D-E. And obviously the Royal Town Planning Institute have their own website and information up there. All of his work, his documentation, uh, his blogs and ideas of what they're working on can all be widely available and downloaded from there. So if you do have the time, 
time, uh, please do go on to iTunes and all other good sources and either like us, leave a review, hopefully a nice one. Um, it all helps. This is a small podcast, but it goes out and helps spreading the word, which is fantastic. Um, you know, the long-term aim is to really be inviting people from around the world to join us on this quest of how to make cities better for people. What disciplines need to be improved? Where are the gaps? Where are the friction points? We can all have utopia, but the reality is we can't create this great digital utopia if we're all sitting here rubbing sticks together. So uh, thank you for your time. If you can give us a review, that'd be fantastic. Uh, do keep an eye out for the next shows that are coming out soon. We'll be discussing everything across sustainability in real estate. We'll be talking about uh, international diseases. Uh, so really cheery topics, but important topics that we do have to address if we are going to create cities for future humans. Uh, my name's Josh. Thank you very much for your time. Speak to you soon.